The cricket sang in the grasses. They sang the song of summer's ending in the valley. A sad, monotonous song. Summer is over and gone, they sang. Over and gone. Over and gone. Summer is dying, dying. Pop up pumpkin patches spring up in vacant lots. The ice cream man changes his song to jingle bells. Children lament the upcoming shorter days. The Mexican Ladies Social Club is planning their black and white gala. Chucky shirts come out of their boxes. Vendors sell marigolds in the street. Sea otters plot their next surfboard ride. Orcas plan their next boat attack. Beavers put the finishing touches on their dams. The least turn finds her roost in the rookery. The winemaker heard the crickets, and sadness came over him too. Another summer gone. That means it's time for the grape harvest. The fruit ripens and the berries get sweeter. The mildew has seemed to subside. The grape leaves in the field heard the cricket song and turned bright red with anxiety. Hello, you've reached another edition of the Cowboy Jeff and Andy podcast. Today, Andy welcomes Luke Laurie, a board game designer. So it will be a great show. Stay tuned. I'm here with Luke Laurie, and he is a board game designer. Good morning, Luke. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, when I started learning about you and I started thinking about board games, uh, my experience is is Yahtzee and Candyland and Monopoly. And my 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 parents were not that not much of gamers, and it just wasn't my experience. So it was really interesting to delve into your experiences, and and these games are a lot more complicated. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. There's a whole field, a whole world of uh, tabletop games, board games, role-playing games, and card games that if you're not uh, you know, genuinely plugged into it, you might not even know that it exists. Now, you came out of the, the Dungeons & Dragons world. Uh, you are a grand master. Can you tell me about kind of your early experiences with gaming? Well, the so the term is that an official title. The term is dungeon master, and okay. it's it's actually a pretty common term to be a dungeon master. It just means that when you sit down and you play Dungeons and Dragons, you're the one who runs the show. And uh, so I was a child of the '70s and '80s, and uh, Dungeons and Dragons was uh, to a degree somewhat obscure and somewhat vilified for uh, demonology or bad influence at the time. But, or the nerds uh, playing all night in college and not oh, yes. doing, not studying. And for me, it was the nerds playing all night 
in fifth grade. That's when I started. Before video games. Uh, so I think we had the Atari 2600 and the video games were places where you'd lose your quarters at the arcade. But yeah, we played. Uh, I played Dungeons and Dragons since I was a kid. Um, I quickly became the person at the table who would run the show, creating the stories, designing the adventures. And uh, that carried into all kinds of other creative pursuits in my life. So when did you want to make the jump to designing your own games? Well, I think probably all along there was a degree of design and creation as part of my experience as a gamer. Um, you know, you always play these games and find issues or flaws and you want to kind of house rule or um, change the way it goes or you see the game isn't really going well that day and so you make a little change to make it work to let people keep going. Um, but in Dungeons and Dragons, there's all kinds of latitude. When you're playing these role-playing games, you're designing entire worlds. You're essentially, you know, taking your imagination and finding a an experience that you want others to have and having them engage with that experience in a combination of creative storytelling and then with rules that are going to um, govern how actions occur. And that's really, uh, I mean, it seems like the fantasy element is attractive and the story element is a fact is attractive to people. Absolutely. And so, you know, when you, you kind of grow up, uh, I was maybe not entirely, um, you know, completely an introvert, but I was very much kind of a person in my own head and, uh, reading Tolkien really young, really, uh, being drawn towards, uh, science fiction and fantasy elements. So that, that led me to, to keep playing the role-playing games, but throughout the years, I continued to explore other games, uh, you know, various kinds of war games and strategy games, the kind of games that a lot of people would be familiar with, of course, you know, Monopoly and Risk, but then I delved into games like Axis and Allies and Shogun, um, various card games. In the late 90s and then the early 2000s, there's kind of an explosion in the world of games. A lot of that was driven by collectible card games. So you may be familiar with like, you know, Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh. Um, but one of the biggest moneymakers still to this day is Magic the Gathering. And Magic the Gathering is, it's a pretty incredibly complex game with brand new sets of cards that come out multiple times a year. And, um, you know, early on I was into that. And essentially when you sit down to play that game, you are designing. You're taking various cards from different sets and you're putting them together and you're thinking about all of the, the kinds of complex rules and how they're going to interact as you go about playing. And then you sit down to play and that play is like your test to see if your ideas of what you put together work. So around 2004, five, six, um, I had various friends who began exposing me to what you might call the Euro-style board games. And they'd, they'd existed for um, decades, but they hadn't yet um, achieved this kind of market saturation where you'd find them everywhere. So um, these are games where they can feel a little bit more abstract. Um, there isn't necessarily like a, a one-to-one -one correspondence between the action that you're taking and then something real in the real world. 
um, but they may involve dice. They may involve little, you know, wooden pieces, um, cardboard tiles, some kind of board. Um, the manner in which they're played can be complex in terms of rule interaction and spatial intelligence and some mathematics. And so as you play these games, they can be a real test of your brain power. Um, and, and that's a little different from like the role-playing games that are very um, imagination focused. These Euro board games are much more um, mechanical focused, even though they, they may tell a story. A lot of it is about how does it work and how do I win knowing how it works. And this is contrasted with uh, Ameritrash, I've heard that term. Uh, it's more these kind of capitalist domination games. And so it's a, it was a shift in focus. Uh, yeah, and in some cases, quite literally. Uh, so there's a lot of different games worldwide that um, that involve economics. They involve economies. Um, and, and sadly or unfortunately, a lot of these games um, had a colonialist kind of bent to them. Um, and this is true of what you might call Ameritrash and of the Euro style board games. All kinds of these Euro board games were about how to best control the world. Um, that said, there's a, there's a different style of play that in these, in these games, um, some people might uh, be cautious about approaching games knowing that there's going to be a real hard line between your winners and losers and that the experience is going to be a good experience for the winner and a bad experience for the losers. Um, that can be the little more of the, what we might call the Ameritrash style game, where my goal is to beat the snot out of you and take all of your stuff and laugh at you while I do it. Monopoly. Whereas a Euro style board game is the kind of game where, um, it's like a battle of the wits. And at the end of the game, you can kind of nod at each other and shake hands and you can congratulate the winner for their ever so slightly better moves and better decisions. Um, that's all, of course, kind of an exaggeration. I, I like to make the comparison of these styles, uh, Euro-style board games versus Ameritrash-style games. They're, they're kind of like definitions of categories of music. If you try to give a hardline definition of folk music or jazz music or rock music, you're going to find outliers. You're going to find exceptions. You're going to find hybrids. So these aren't these aren't hard and fast lines and definitions. Now, when I, I looked up your games, I see uh, engine building and worker placement games. And maybe you could explain those terms. Yeah. So um, for for someone who's familiar with these style board games, those kinds of terms are, are pretty common. Um, but for, for folks who aren't familiar with modern board games, a worker placement style game is essentially one where I would have a, I would have a collection of people, a collection of these workers. Um, the the standard um, shape of these, what they call the meeple, and it's kind of a rounded person. And um, you'll see these icons all over in, in the gaming circles. Um, uh, and so you take your, your meeple on your turn, and you take it and you place it somewhere. Where you place it determines the action that you choose for that turn. It's a very straightforward mechanic, and then it allows for all kinds of other different kinds of uh, play, depending on what kinds of actions are triggered by the placement of that worker. The other one that you mentioned was engine building. And the basic idea uh, behind engine building is the idea that you, you start with very little or nothing at all, 
and you may acquire something like cards or tiles in front of you. And as you do so, you're gradually building an engine and that engine would increase your productivity or increase your ability to score points. It would create also um, a game in which the arc of the game is it starts simple and over time it becomes more and more complex. And by the end of the game, you have this massive sprawling something in front of you that has a function, but it also has this, um, this feeling of accomplishment, the feeling that you've built and created something. And it really, when you think about our world, how we do build systems and then, and then they just kind of go off. I mean, it really reminds me of the AI debate or the climate change debate. We've, you know, we've made these systems and now they're almost, we're having trouble reining them in. And that's a great point. And, and I, I am to a degree, um, you know, pretty strong environmentalist. Um, I definitely care about world events and, um, and our impact on things. Um, one of the games that I worked on is called the Manhattan Project Energy Empire. Yeah, if you could tell us, kind of summarize that. That's a really interesting uh, game. So um, a lot of folks are now suddenly aware of the Manhattan Project due to Oppenheimer. And, um, but many years ago, um, there was a game called the Manhattan Project, and it was derived from essentially the story of the race to build the bomb and uh, what it would take to, you know, collect and refine your uranium, your plutonium, and build the technology and perform tests and eventually try to create the bomb. And in the original Manhattan Project game, you won the game if you built the bomb, essentially. Whereas um, I designed a game that ended up becoming the sequel. Um, you'll get a kick out of the original name for the sequel was uh, Drill Baby Drill. Right. And, and yeah, I heard that and, and I thought, well, is this really fossil fuel focused? So um, it, at various points in the development of the game, it had more of a fossil fuel focus. And um, as the game developed, it kind of became this hybrid of um, all kinds of different energy sources are represented somewhat abstractly in the game. And the environmental damage that you incur as the result of your choices are part of the game. Your, your victory points in the game represent your kind of your nation's quality of life. And so as you go through the game, you are, you know, you're building shopping malls and highways, you're consuming energy. The more energy you can consume, the more you can do. That's that engine building concept. But all of these different choices that you make along the way come with opportunity costs and environmental costs that you have to balance. So as you go about the game, you might gain points because you have your shopping mall and your airport and your agriculture. Um, but in the meanwhile, you also balance that you damaged your forest and your ocean and your air. And so you have these kind of positives and negatives. If you slow down for a while on your productivity and work to try to clean things up, you can potentially prevent future harm that you will incur. Now, that general concept, in this game, it's, it's environmental um, balance. But in all of my games, I try to include two main aspects that have a lot of parallels to life. One of them is that there are always going to be costs and that balancing the the kind of the harm or the costs that you do with the benefit you gain makes for interesting choices. 
the second of those main principles that I include is an external threat. Now, a lot of folks are familiar with the winter is coming and the White Walkers are going to be marching down on um, uh, Winterfell and the rest of Westeros and Game of Thrones. This idea of an external threat creates interesting dynamics because you can be playing the game, you're, you're doing what you're doing, but the whole time in the back of your mind, you're thinking about that other, that external threat that I have to be cautious of that could take us all out. In some of my games, that's monsters. Some of my games, that's uh, explosions blowing things up. And one of my games, that's uh, the fact that you're going about your building, but you have to rescue people from a whirlpool too. And if you don't bother to rescue them, you've got a problem on your hands. So I find that when you have a sense of tension and you have a sense of potential peril, your choices become more interesting. And that what what makes a game um, immersive. Wow, immersive. That's, yeah, to really lose yourself in a game. Now, did you have, I mean, were you trying to promote? I mean, we're looking environmentalism and in a kind of a, under the radar type of way, as far as really acknowledging that there are trade-offs to our unbridled resource use. Yeah. The, the truth is um, I tried to get away from any idea that there is an absolute and perfect approach. And in an energy empire, in fact, you can win the game being completely destructive to the environment with the right choices as long as you just did a little bit better than someone else along the way. So there definitely, there are benefits to providing, you know, more food and more resources to your people. Building and making more stuff has benefits. The, the thing I didn't want is I didn't want you to sit down at the game and have the sense that there's an obvious win. I wanted the sense that every choice is going to kind of shift that dynamic. And so you have to find that balance. Well, I tell you, you could really do a sequel. I mean, there's a, it's a lot of, you know, our world has changed so much and, yeah. and we're transitioning away from the fossil fuel economy. So that might be a good idea. Well, my my most recent game that's currently in de development is called Andromeda's Edge. And um, um, this is actually co-designed with my son. I, I, I uh, In almost all my projects, I have some kind of collaborator or co-designer either um, that is a, a co-designer or someone I've worked with closely as a developer who's really been a part of that. Um, but Andromeda's Edge is a is a science fiction game that takes place at an imaginary edge of the Andromeda galaxy where you're taking the role of a faction, um, like a diverse group of people, um, but you're alien um, beings of various kinds and robots and so on. And you're essentially fleeing out to the edge of the galaxy to escape the oppressive force of unity that's taken over the rest of the galaxy. Um, is that a metaphor? Well, so the reality is I have games where there's a lot of conflict. You're, you, the conflict is there's scarce resources, there's scarce basis to live. But rather than it being a colonialist thing where, well, our our kingdom has gotten so big, it's time to expand into other people's area. Go to Mars. In Go these, live on Mars. Yeah. In these games, it's more you're fleeing out of desperation, and that desperation drives you to conflict, where these are these are desperately trying to survive groups, and in the process, in their fight for survival, it leads to them um, 
essentially, you know, war or fight for resources or try to get there first and so on. So these seem to be kind of big picture games. I know you did uh, Whistle Mountain, which was more about uh, building and uh, and that was the whirlpool. And the, and uh, so could you tell us a little bit about that? Whistle Mountain is a game I co-designed with a great designer, Scott Caputo. And um, a lot of Scott's games involve these kinds of um, placing of tiles and positioning tiles, connecting tiles together. Um, you could think of these as uh, but the most common game, uh, famous game along those lines, a game called Carcassonne, which people might know. Um, but uh, it isn't exactly like dominoes, but you can think of it similar, where you're, you know, you're trying to place and arrange these tiles in a manner that is the most beneficial. Well, in this game, it's, it's story-driven, and you're um, arranging these various scaffolds, and you're building up um, in this kind of canyon um, these layers of scaffolds and machines. It's kind of abstract. Um, the premise is that as you build, you're kind of melting the ice in the Rocky Mountains and you're flooding the valley where the people live. And so you're, you're balancing that, how much do we build up and how fast? And then it starts causing the water to rise. Now, um, as the water rises, it starts um, you know clogging up and blocking things that you built previously. So it's kind of erasing the board as you go up. Um, in this game's original incarnation, it did have a little more of a, a slightly more concrete environmental message in that it was, you know, rising ocean levels and climate change. And it was a result of consuming fossil fuels and kind of a steampunk um, kind of world. Steampunk? Yeah, so steampunk is that genre you think like, uh, Dark City and Blade Runner, um, The Matrix, where you have uh, science fiction combined with these noir elements. So steampunk has become uh, very much a popular theme in gaming and movies and comics and all that sort of thing. So we started with a steampunk theme for Whistle Mountain, but it ended up becoming more, it looks it looks happy. It has balloon balloons and airships and clouds and things like that. But there are people drowning in a whirlpool too. Well, the look of your games, I guess you put a lot of thought into how your games look and feel. So this is the interesting thing. Um, by the book, I have almost no say in what the games look like. Um, in reality, I've actually had a lot of involvement in some cases because the the relationship between who publishes and prints and creates the the various components for the game and myself as a designer is a little like an author and a publisher so the author might write the novel but they didn't make the cover uh, they don't get to decide on the typeface or the size of the book even so in this case there are there are literally thousands of decisions about the components, the thickness of a card, the, the sheen on a tile, the dimensions of the board, the size of the box. Um, and so a lot of these things are, um, they're structured because of the work that I did. Um, so I'm creating like prototypes. I, I build all of these prototypes. I'm thinking about how icons might look like, is this tool represented by a saw or a hammer or a, a drill? Um, so I think about all of those kinds of aspects, but when I turn it over to the publisher, 
in some cases, that's it. I don't see it again until it's printed. And then in other cases, I'm there every single day as part of the process and all of the major decisions. And um, I, I'm comfortable with both ways of going about it. But I've been extremely lucky that the all of the publishers that I've worked with have made my games beautiful. And they really uh, spent some time and took some investment, um, hired amazing artists. Sometimes it's one artist. Sometimes I think there are 14 artists on 14. the dwellings of Eldervale. There are different people designing um, physical structural components, another person sculpting 3D models. Yeah. Uh, wow. And uh, and I was also the dwellings of Elder Vale. Uh, you mentioned that game. Is that, um, I have a background in city planning. Is that kind of about suburban, mm. suburban development? S building so, six houses you win? Is that the... So this is the story of a of a land called Eldervale, a long abandoned land of Eldervale, that uh, the history of this land is it uh, is what remains after a an arcane or magical apocalypse. So um, you take the role of a faction. Uh, you might be like the centaurs or the trolls or the elves, and you arrive in Eldervale seeking a new home. Um, it's not colonialism because no one lives there. Suburban sprawl. The uh, you are building these dwellings, um, and the magic of this game is the dwellings. Um, your people actually become the dwellings. So oh. it starts as a meeple, a person, and then when they're in the right position and you have the right resources, you put a little hat on top and of the meeple. And they turn into a tiny house. And they look like a little house now. So um, I, in addition to board games, I've got all these other hobbies. And building and creating things is a big part of what I do. So when I'm building prototypes, my versions of these are wood and cardboard. And then I'm, you know, printing out sticky um, stickers to put on things to give them those appearances. But I build stuff out of wood. And I like how things go together. Um, in, in Dwellings of Eldervale, it's the little houses, uh, the people that become the houses. In Andromeda's Edge, there's these incredible science fiction structures that are obelisks and cities and spaceports. And so these are 3D models where the model sits on top of a spaceship. So you have a transport spaceship that occupies an area. Then you get a 3D model of a building that sits on top of that. And then you have your little leaders, which are little, um, little kind of cylindrical type shapes that stick into the 3D model that identify it as yours and show like how many leaders it takes to control that thing. So this all goes together a little bit puzzle or toy-like in a way that creates a satisfaction that rather than I just like, you know, put one thing on there and said, oh, I built this, you literally build it. You put the little parts oh, wow. together yeah, that's uh, very, to create that very structure. Kinesthetic. It has that kinesthetic um, element to it. And a lot of great games do to where People enjoy not just the the act of taking the actions to one up their opponents. They enjoy the the visual tactile experience of actually manipulating the game components. Wow! People like rolling dice. People like you know holding thick coins in their hand. Um, yeah, there is something to that. And like I said, I don't actually get to control that part because that's a publisher decision. But I've been lucky that the publishers have really taken that 
part of the game seriously. And you really believe in collaboration. It really seems like you were had an ongoing blog. You had a team of people with matching T-shirts that would go to conventions. And, yeah. and that, that that is just uh, myself. Uh, you know, I've been exploring performing and improv. And, and it's just a lot about community and how powerful that is. Um, and... I used to be, I would say, like my teens and early 20s, I was the biggest rugged individualist um, believer that only my bootstraps were going to be pulling me up. Um, but even at that time, I did music, played jazz, and um, did theater. And obviously, those pursuits are not individual pursuits. And um, you create your best work when you're surrounded by people you work well with. With... Um, with going into this uh, the board game world, it isn't my primary source of income. It isn't my it isn't how I spend most of my time, and as a result, I really can't give it everything. And instead, what I've been lucky enough to do is find collaborators who are in similar circumstances. So we all have day jobs, and then we we get together from time to time, and we correspond, and we create something amazing together it's part part of the joy is just sitting down with the collaborator you know they're they're people i like to spend time with currently my biggest collaborator is my son and that's bringing us closer together where we can just sit and we can enjoy the creative work and sometimes we argue and sometimes we we come up with ideas sometimes we shoot each other's ideas down but ultimately i know that this process my best work is the work that I've done with others. Well, and it's also a discipline. Um, you mentioned that you get up early and, and, and use that free time to create. And, and I've kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a background in music and I practice guitar, but now I'm getting more into like writing, but it's that immersive experience where mm -hmm. you just lose everything, but you have to do it where you have to write every day. Yeah. And that is, that is precisely what I do. Um, I get up at six almost every single day, regardless of whether it's a weekend or a holiday, um, even on vacation sometimes. And before everybody's up, I have either my spiral notebook in front of me and I'm writing with my uniball pen and drawing and sketching and taking down those ideas that sometimes they come out of a sleep state. Sometimes they come out of things that I'd been kicking around the last few days. But interestingly, my morning time is a time when, if you ask anyone, I really can't talk. Like I, my verbal centers are not active. And somehow these spatial mathematical parts of my brain are pretty much fully functional. So I'm, I'm drawing out these designs and so forth um, while I'm still, you know, waking up with my coffee. But yes, every day, almost every day, um, I do some design work. And like any, like any creative discipline, without the habit and without that, uh, that routine and that regimen, pretty soon things start to slip. And it does take time to recover it when it has slipped away. And the other thing is you are doing the work uh, of an artist in promoting. And that's kind of where I'm at as well. It's like you got to get out there. You got to talk to people. I know you're at these conventions. Uh, you were at the Pacificon Photospiel. Can you talk? Uh, I mean, 
have you been, uh, where have you been and, and what has that experience been like? So, um, there are board game tabletop game conventions and some of the listeners might. Have you been to Europe? I have not. <laughs> no. Um, the biggest, the biggest, uh, game convention, uh, for tabletop is in Europe, but probably the second largest is, uh, Gen Con in Indiana. I've been to Gen Con five or six times. Um, the sizes of these conventions is is pretty incredible, and that's when your eyes open up to how big the industry is. It's wow. a, a giant industry, and there are definitely people making their millions. Um, some pretty large companies um, doing very well with the their the fraction of their business that is games. Um, and all kinds of room for small upstarts because making a game is extremely challenging um, and very time consuming. And as a result, you know, people who are really willing to put in the time, they have a chance of making it in this market. And this isn't something that's dominated by corporate age. There is some degree of that. Um, there's a very large company called Asmodee. Um, they published one of my games. Cryo is a Z-Man game, which is a subsidiary of Asmodee. They're, they're a massive company. Um, Hasbro. Uh, Hasbro, if, if I remember this right, uh, their largest source of revenue is their Wizards of the Coast division, which makes Dungeons and & Dragons and Magic the Gathering. They make more money on that than they do on toys. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so yeah, there's definitely money in this industry. Um, there's also a whole lot of folks who put everything they have into it and don't make it. Um, so you see a lot of, a lot of smaller companies try, they go the, um, they'll do a Kickstarter, they'll do crowdfunding, um, and they might get out a game or two, but a lot of these, these companies, uh, you know, rise and fall. Um, that said, the market um, people are constantly looking for new and interesting games and thousands come out each year. Um, it's, it's a little hard to think of a parallel because there's so many hobbies where, um, it's not about acquiring the next new and slightly different product. There's a whole lot of hobbies where, um, it's a lot more of the same. Um, but it is a little like when we used to collect music. So you'd be constantly going to the record store, picking up albums and, you know, building those stacks of the tapes or the CDs or the LPs. So it's a little like that, where it's like you can't have too many albums. Um, that, of course, is now shrunk down and vanished into a stream app on your phone. Right. But board games hasn't done that. Um, so people's they, they there's streaming the music on their phone and that tiny little app. And then they have an entire wall of their house is all of these gigantic and expensive board games. Wow. Well, that's, that's an area where they're still selling tangible product rather than digital product. Right. Um, yeah. And there's, there's also some awkwardness there and that almost all of these games are produced in China. Um, they do require the um, international supply chains to function um, and that the, the market for it makes domestic production of board games very difficult. Um, in part because it's not just that the, the domestic producers who would actually be making the board games are expensive, but also 
in many cases, they actually lack the technology or infrastructure to make the things that the market demands now. So um, it's pretty similar to our supply chains for automobiles and everything else. It's like, well, if you want to make a car, you can't get that part here in the United States. It has to come from somewhere else. Have you noticed uh, a larger interest in board games uh, after COVID? So interestingly, um, there was a big uptick in people playing online board game simulators during um, COVID lockdowns and during times when mask mandates were preventing large gatherings. So um, that enabled people to play board games in a visual um, simulation environment, a little like when people play 3D video games, they're walking through a 3D environment. Well, you can be in a 3D environment that is a table with a board game on it and dice get rolled and some of the functions are automated. You don't have to physically shuffle the cards. You just click shuffle and they get shuffled. This, uh, for a while, this felt like, oh, this is gonna be a competition um, with the real uh, tangible products, uh, the board games, but it turns out it's more of a means for people exploring and discovering games. And for good games, it doesn't seem to hurt their bottom line at all because people, more and more people are finding out about the games and um, the board game industry, tabletop game industry is thriving. And is that a is that a, an application for you to take your games and put them into a more of a digital format? So yes, and I'm lucky that I actually don't have to do that because um, where I'm in my career, I, I am able to get my work with a publisher fairly easily, and then the publisher does all that digital stuff. For me, I uh, for a long time, I was cutting edge. I was all about the use of computers, and um, uh, being a teacher who taught on Zoom for a year and the frustrations that have come from watching education get turned to be so digital and watching my students' eyes bulging every day with excessive use of um, Chromebooks and online materials, I can't wait to turn my computers off a lot of the time. Um, and uh, I mean, that's, that's driven me back out to the hills. I mountain bike all the time. I, I like to put it down, but ultimately a lot of my work does have to be done digitally. It, it's, it is that primary tool for creation. Um, so as a result, I'm grateful. Other people will digitize my work. They will go through the process of, uh, you know, running play tests and so on. And, and I will do that sometimes, but that isn't my preferred mode. I want to sit down with real people, watch their real experience, see, um, their emotional response to a game that is very difficult to inter infer as you're doing this online. And it must be very gratifying to hear from your uh, consumers. And and also, uh, what is there a target? Could you characterize an audience that is attracted? Is it just run the gamut or? I have a, um, see, there's a thing where there's so many different uh, styles of play and preferences in in tabletop games that there's not any game that's popular with everyone. Um, there are games that are considered, you know, quote unquote, better, uh, higher ranking, more sophisticated, the top games. A lot of those games are extremely complex and very niche products that actually only a small fraction of players can even approach. 
Whereas there are also games that are maybe not as highly regarded critically, but they're smash critical successes in the market because they appeal to a broader range of people. Um, you can think of it just like film. I mean, how many action films did I not see the last five years that where all the money went, right? And so you have- you Don't have, get me started about <laughs> you, you have the product that appeals to the people, but that isn't necessarily that isn't necessarily your Oppenheimer or your Wes Anderson film. That isn't that isn't your art house film that that breaks new ground in cinema. Um, that's your commercial product. So you have all these different levels, but then you also have just these different styles of play. You know, some games are they're light and quick, and some games are slow and pensive. Um, and even within these categories, just like the tiniest little differences between games can really change who your game appeals to. So the trick is finding your particular niche, like what category of player. I have enough games that have enough similarities that people in the industry are familiar with my style of game. And so that's a great asset because then it's a I, brand. Yeah, I don't have... Like people who don't like my games aren't going to pick them up and then give them a bad rating. They're just going to not play that. Whereas other folks who know that they like my games, they're going to be watching for my next work. Um, and and my style of game to characterize it uh, for like a non-gamer audience is it's kind of like several steps away from a new gamer. So my games are not for someone just entering this field. Um, people whose only board game experience might be, um, connect Four and chess and Scrabble, um, would probably not, you know, gravitate towards my games. My games would be, yeah, you've played some Magic the Gathering. You've played some Dungeons and Dragons. You've played Settlers of Catan. You've played Ticket to Ride. You've taken it to some next steps to some games that aren't as popular. Then you might start looking at games like mine that are going to take you 90 minutes to two hours. They're going to take you 15 minutes to set it up and get started. And throughout the game, you're going to be have to be thinking about what are the rules of play and how do you handle these different interactions and circumstances. Wow. Well, uh, this podcast, we talk about music and talk about local arts and culture. And you had mentioned you have a background in jazz and maybe you could talk a little bit about that. <sighs> I know you went to the Napa Jazz Festival, which sounded like a hoot. So I, I, I was, I would say I was a musician. I have an easier time saying that. Um, and thinking was it guitar? Of it that way. No, I played trumpet. Oh, trumpet. Uh -huh. Yeah. So I played trumpet in high school. I was first trumpet through most of that. Um, I played in Cuesta Jazz. And where'd you grow up? In the jazz ensemble. I grew up in Moore Bay, Los uh -huh. Sosos, San Luis, San Luis County. Um, been in Santa Maria now for longer than anywhere, 25 years years about in Santa Maria. Um, and yeah, so I was very into music and I was even in a jazz funk band um, for a little while that was great fun, played bars and things. But at that time, 90s, live music was really hard to make it work. There were not many venues where they were hosting live music. And so, and we had a pretty large band, so it wasn't like we could just play anywhere. Um, and of course it makes you no money. And of course it takes all your time. 
Um, and of course you have, uh, you, you, you bigger the band, the more likely you're going to have personality things. And pay, or you have to schedule rehearsals and yes. how much do you get paid with a big right. band? And, and ironically, it's easiest to schedule with the people who have like the less, like they don't have a job, they, they can be there. <laughs> and so it, the, all that makes it tricky. So I really admire folks who can like, you know, they can have a day job and they can keep, keep their musical group together. Um, but for me, I kind of retired. I did theater for a while, um, community theater. And then with uh, teaching, um, for many years, my emphasis was on doing pre-engineering work, running engineering clubs, um, writing grants and building robots, building robots as a hobbyist myself, coding. And then I moved into the gaming. Um, and that was about 15 years ago and, um, designing started shortly after that. Um, but music, music has always been there. Uh, my love of music, uh, it's pretty diverse though. It, I guess it used to be more specific. I used to really just be all about progressive rock. You know, it was, it was <laughs> yes. yes and rush. rush and King Crimson and the more complicated, the better. Um, but I always also listened to some fusion jazz. You know, it was uh, Weather Report, uh, Miles Davis, um, Jocko stuff, Stanley Clark, Chick Corea. Um, and from time to time, we'd, we would get out to concerts. A lot of the concerts, we would it would be, you know, what you might expect, just like some, you know, 70s rock band or a, um, a prog rock band or something like that. In the early 2000s, I think we kind of opened up, my my family in general, we opened up to listening to a lot more alternative rock, um, being exposed to more new artists. And somewhere, it was prior to COVID, but somewhere about five or six years ago, I really went back to jazz hard. And um, I, I probably listened to a new album almost every day because of streaming streaming just lets you find stuff so easily i'll be listening to an artist that i listened to a previous day i see that there's this certain musician on the roster who played together um there's so much uh, cross-pollination in jazz that these artists are all they're cross-promoting too it's like you know i'm putting out this new album guess what i've got this artist playing on it and then you want to go and explore the music they make as well so I have been going to more um, more jazz concerts, and I can't wait to go to my next one. Um, but a big part of it is this this kind of understanding and acceptance that uh, jazz isn't done. Um, there's some great documentaries out right now, including the um, um, various documentaries about artists whose careers spanned essentially all of jazz. Uh, going back to 40s, 50s, in my head, it was always the, the idea that new styles and new evolutions in music were different people. But, uh, you know, you take Miles Davis and you take Herbie Hancock and you take these, these great innovators, they were actually there for all of those phases. They played on all of those albums. They, they didn't let music stay what it was and sometimes this alienated people along the way but they carried the art to a new level and for me i enjoy the idea that there's there's new music coming out today and the more i explore it it's it's fantastic 
I don't need to go back in time to, to hear jazz. I can hear new jazz that comes out today and it's amazing stuff. I guess that parallels the board games too. Uh, we have a, we had a motto in the, um, the collaborative I was a part of, we used to do these blogs and the motto was the best games are yet to be made. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a good way to end. And, uh, thank you so much, Luke, for coming and joining me for the podcast. Thank you. And maybe you could recommend, uh, 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 an artist that we could feature on our, as we, as we go out. Well, how about uh, we encourage folks to tune in and find some music by the drummer Yusuf Days. All right. Thank you so much, Lou. reach the end of another episode of the Cowboy Jeff and Andy podcast. My special thanks to Luke Laurie. I can be reached on Facebook at Andy Watson and we are on Gmail at Cowboy Jeff and Andy at gmail.com all lowercase. So I will see you next week. Bye bye.